Welcome to Cast 9. Gene editing has become an incredibly powerful tool in science and technology, and within the past decade, there have been incredible strides in the technology used to do it. One of these tools is the CRISPR-Cas9 system. That's Cas without the T. And yeah, the name of my podcast is a pun. Cas, again, without the T, stands for CRISPR-associated protein. And this combination of CRISPR-Cas9 is a powerful and extremely useful tool for inserting and clipping genes. In this episode, I talked to Alan Dove, a science journalist who just happens to have a PhD in microbiology and is a co-host on This Week in Virology. We talk about CRISPR and how it was discovered and how it's used and why it's such a powerful tool. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Alan, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Hey, before we begin, why don't you tell our listeners um, a little bit uh, about who you are? Uh, yeah, so I'm a, uh, I'm a science journalist. Um, I started out going into uh, basic research and was a uh, graduate student in Vincent Racaniello's lab at Columbia University way back in the 1990s, which um, was ancient history for <laughs> your generation, I'm sure. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, then I, uh, just toward the end of that process, I discovered that I was, uh, actually a lot better at explaining science than doing it. Um, and <laughs> so being in New York at the time, I, I looked around and realized that there was this whole media industry and they actually employed people to explain science. So I started looking into that and, um, did an internship in the nature publishing offices, the, the folks who do the nature journals. They, they have a big office in New York. Um, and then turned that into a freelance science writing career that's been going on for um, 20 years as of this March. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's kind of exactly why I wanted to have you on the show. I needed somebody who was more versed in microbio and a little bit more of a solid science communicator than I was for this topic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again so much for coming on the no show. No problem. This is this sounds like fun. Thanks. All right, so let's let's dive deep. Let's start talking about CRISPR. Right. And and not the place where you put the lettuce in the refrigerator. <laughs> no. Not that place. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's start by uh by defining it. What is what is uh CRISPR? Right. So um, this is this is a system that probably even people who don't really keep track of science news have heard something about it. It's CRISPR, which stands for Cluster Regularly Interspaced Short Palindr Palindromic Repeats, but you don't need to remember that. Um, what it what it kind of sounds like when you read science news about it is sort of a magic wand for engineering, genetic engineering. And everybody's going on about how, wow, you can you can do all these things and we're going to change our genomes and this and that. Um, and it is it, it is frankly a jaw dropping technology. It is a really, really amazing thing um, that um, it, it's kind of been hiding in plain sight. It's this is derived from or, or it actually is a naturally occurring system in bacteria 
and some very smart researchers just a few years ago figured out how to, well, first of all, discovered it, um, and then um, figured out how to how to turn it into a genome editing system. Um, and I, I, I don't know, uh, maybe, maybe it would make sense to kind of step back a little bit. And, um, so the, um, molecular biology revolution really got underway in the sixties and seventies, 1960s and seventies. Um, and, uh, a big part of that was not only did people figure out that DNA was the genetic material, but then in very close a close sequence of events over a period of just a few years. Some folks figured out how to sequence DNA and how to sequence proteins and all this stuff started coming together. And one of the huge discoveries to come out of that was these um, bacterial enzymes called restriction enzymes or restriction endonucleases. And these are, these are proteins, these are enzymes that occur in bacteria that I, that will bind to and cut a specific DNA sequence. So it it's, turns out that this is kind of an immune system in bacteria. Uh, there will be, be an enzyme in the bacterium that will cut some, let's say, a six-base sequence, and it will recognize that sequence and cut it. And then the, the bacterium has evolved so that that sequence either doesn't occur or is not accessible in its genome. What that, but if you just had, you know, a random genome of some virus, some bacterial virus, a bacterial phage, there are pretty good odds that any particular six base sequence might occur in that genome, right? So when a, when a phage infects a bacterium that has one of these restriction enzymes, the enzyme will recognize that piece of DNA as being foreign because it has that sequence in it. And so it'll cut it there and that breaks up the DNA of the phage and the, the phage can't infect the bacterium then. But it's, it's a very, we, we would call it, um, kind of an innate immune system. So in, in humans, we have, it's not adaptive. It's, it's not adaptive. Exactly. Yeah. We have two immune systems. We've got the innate immune system, which just kind of generally responds to things that look like they might be threats. And then we have the adaptive immune system that has a very, very specific targeted response to specific threats that it's seen before. Um, so if you've been vaccinated against polio, then you have antibodies against poliovirus. But those antibodies don't cross-react with any other viruses. So restriction enzymes are essentially an innate immune system in bacteria. And that's kind of cool. That was that was some neat basic. Yeah, that's you know, that's cool. yeah. <laughs> who knew bacteria had immune systems. Yeah. Um, and uh, that you know that came out in the in the as I say the '60s and '70s was when all this was happening. And it turns out all kinds of bacteria have these enzymes, and so people purified a bunch of different ones with different specificities. And that was one of the key enabling technologies for molecular biology, because now if you sequence DNA, you can pick places in it that have these sequences you can recognize with the restriction enzymes and you can cut it in those spots by incubating the DNA with the enzymes and then you can splice them together. And, um, so we're, we're, you know, using those enzymes routinely to clone genes and that's been going on for decades now. Um, and the, well, the, the folks who discovered 
those enzymes. Uh, one of them started a company called New England Biolabs, and you can open up their catalog now and find thousands and thousands of these enzymes and choose from the ones you need. So that's all really cool because there's this basic science that got turned into this amazing you know, technology that we can use, but it's a very, it, it's a very limited technology um, because it's, um, it's not specific enough. So if you've got a, a six base sequence that you're going to recognize and cut, and you want to cut out one particular gene in the entire human genome, if you take all the DNA from a human cell and you incubate it with a restriction enzyme that's got a six base recognition sequence, it's gonna make thousands of cuts, right? Because that sequence occurs thousands of times within the genome. So you have to take out the piece that you want to work on and then you can subdivide that and put it back together and you can do all these various tricks, but it's very cumbersome to do a specific edit on a really big genome like our genome and for pretty much the whole time since the discovery of restriction enzymes people have have been trying to find more specific ways to to cut and splice dna to get around that problem and they came up with a few there were um uh, i guess about 10 years ago there were the uh, zinc finger nucleases and then a little more recently there was um something called talens, which I forget what they stand for, but they're kind of a simil similar idea. It's an enzyme that you can design to target a specific sequence. So now you can go into your human cells or your mouse cells and excise one gene and, and do this. But those are both still pretty complicated systems to work with. You have to basically build a custom protein for each gene you want to take out. So it takes months to do this experiment well so it's it's not very specific and on top of that it takes quite a bit of time if you want to exactly get specific. so it's a it's a huge project to to do this kind of thing and it's not it's not as consistent or reliable that you, as you would need to to do something like uh, human gene therapy you know so this is one of the applications people have been trying to get to work for decades and decades um somebody's born with a defective gene that causes some problem, how do you fix that in that person, right? You know, they've got all their cells already have their genomes in them and you're going to try and edit all the genes and all their billions of cells in their body. That's not a trivial problem. Or if you want to make um, a strain of mice that's missing a particular gene, uh, there are ways to do that, but they're very cumbersome. Um, cause you, you know, the, the latest thing before CRISPR was these zinc finger nucleases and talons and it would take a few months and it took some expertise and the results were usually pretty good, but sometimes they didn't work so well. So was this process like expensive because of um, the, the time it took? I think in the context of what came before, which was, um, uh, an even more cumbersome system where you would you would flank your sequence with homologous long homologous stretches and and hope you could get a recombination event. I mean that would eat up years of somebody's time. So they were more cost effective, but they were still they were still not the kind of thing that you just do trivially. Hmm. That's interesting. So what happened, and this is 
really kind of the the story of basic and applied research in a nutshell. I mean, I just love the CRISPR story for this. There were there were some researchers. Uh, it actually starts in an applied research lab that was working on a totally different problem. Um, company called Denisco, which I just googled them before this podcast, and I found out that they have been they were bought by Dupont uh, a few years ago. Um, but they they make food ingredients and they make yogurt and enzymes and you know food production stuff. So. They were interested, some, they, they had some bacteriologists who were working on the problem of, um, of keeping their, their yogurt bacteria growing well. And one of the problems that you have with that is that bacteriophages can get into your yogurt culture and totally screw up your bacteria. So they were looking at, the, at their bacterial species and their yogurt cultures, and they found um, that this, uh, these CRISPR loci and the and the the crispr locus had been discovered in some some bacteria already but nobody knew what it did and these folks at denisco figured out that in fact it was involved somehow in antiviral defense so they said wow that's kind of cool but we can't immediately figure out how we would use that and we work for a company that wants to make yogurt so we're going to set the project aside <laughs> um but I, they, they, I actually have that paper like right in front of me. And it's interesting knowing now what we know about the CRISPR system that they were extremely limited in their speculation for what it could be used for. I think in the paper on like the last page, it says that they wanted to maybe use it to figure out how to keep their cultures alive and quite possibly a way to defend against um, antibiotic resistant bacteria. So they really had like yeah. no idea what they were sitting <laughs> on. Had no idea what they were sitting on. And I mean, I could just, I could just imagine like taking this into a corporate boardroom and, and say, Hey, you know, we discovered this and, and having, having the bean counters look at you and say, uh, yeah, what's it going to do in the next quarter? You know, we, we got, we got, uh, we got shareholders to answer to here. What are we going to tell them? Um, so they they published the work, um, which is good. A lot of corporate research doesn't get published in a timely manner, but they saw that this didn't have any immediate proprietary use, so they went ahead and put it out there. Um, and some bacteriologists now in basic research at academic institutions were also kind of interested in the CRISPR um, sequences because this is, this is just sort of a weird set of sequences that show up in all these different bacterial species. Um, so the name clustered regularly interspaced repeats there. You, you find this cluster of just dozens and dozens of little short repeated sequences. And then you look at another species of bacteria and it's got dozens and dozens of little short repeated sequences. And why? Right. You know, that's, there's gotta be some kind of selective pressure that has applied to, to all these different bacteria. Um, and now with this work from the folks at Denisco, it looks like some kind of antiviral defense mechanism. So then uh, the basic research lab started digging into it. And this is where, you know, you say, oh, basic research, it's never, it's not going to do anything. It's going to be 30 years before you get anything useful out of this. Um, in this case, it was more like five years. Uh, it was just incredibly fast how, how this whole thing came together 
and uh, so they they found um, and and there are several groups in here. I don't want to shortchange anybody, but um, it, from what I've seen, Jennifer Doudna is kind of like one of the real leaders of <laughs> this work who picked up on a lot of its applications earliest. So I do want to call her out specifically, but uh, there there are like a half dozen other people who've and did some very important work as well. So um, Doudna realized, well, okay, some of these sequences have like little bits of homology to phages. And so she started looking around at that possibility and eventually worked out that there's this system in the bacteria. It's got um, the CRISPR-associated enzymes, the Cas enzymes, that... Um, that when these CRISPR sequences, these sequences that are homologous to certain bacteriophages get transcribed into RNA, the Cas enzymes process them and pick them up. And then one of the, one of the Cas enzyme complexes can take this RNA sequence and basically go looking around for a DNA that matches it. And these sequences are 20, five to 50 bases long. Okay, so remember that one of the big problems with using restriction enzymes is you've got maybe six or eight bases that you're going to match, and it matches way too many things. These are much longer than that. They're, they're you know, 30, 40 bases long, and as a result, they match much, much more specifically. So this system will go and match to one particular phage sequence. It's not just detecting, oh, here's something that's not part of my genome. It's detecting, oh, this is bacteriophage lambda, right? It's, it's very, very specific. It binds to that. It cuts in one particular spot. And um, what has now come to light, of course, is that this is an adaptive immune system. The way these genes get into the bacterial genome is that there's an infection by the phage that the bacteria manages to shut down, and then it cuts up the phage DNA um, and essentially copies it into its own genome in the CRISPR locus. Like, okay, here's a sequence of a phage that we once saw. Watch out for this. And then I, I know I'm totally anthropomorphizing. I'm not supposed to do that, but... Um, but it is helpful in understanding it because the, the system then has a, a record of phages that have infected this species, and that gets passed down with the genome to all subsequent generations of that bacterium. So now, you know, 10 generations back, this bacterium was infected with this phage. Now the same phage comes along again. It's already got a highly specific answer to it, um, which is presumably why this has been selected for in so many different species of bacteria, because that's incredibly powerful. So that is all pretty awesome um, in terms of, of the basic science. I mean, wow, you know, there, there's adaptive immunity. And not, not only are there restriction enzymes, there's this whole <laughs> adaptive system. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and, you know, looking at this paper from 07, They've got just a tiny bit of it, even in, in this paper. They took the, the phage and they introduced it to their cultures. They sequenced their cultures and they find these spacers and they have these this DNA in between. And they're like, 
mm, I wonder if that's yeah. something. And so they took it and they can actually match it to the phages and they can swap in and swap out and have the bacteria develop resistance or take yes. resistance away. And it's, it's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know it's, it's incredible. Yes. Yeah. And one of the, um, we'll get to applications in a moment, I'm sure. But one of the, um, the really cool things about this is that some other folks have now taken that and are reversing the process. They're looking at CRISPR sequences in different species of bacteria that we don't know a whole lot about. We don't know what phages infect them. And they're saying, okay, here are these CRISPR sequences. Now let's go find the phage that matches this CRISPR. <laughs> so you can now go hunting entirely new bacteria <laughs> Oh, jeez, that's crazy. Um, wow. wow. But the, uh, you know, of course, what puts this in the New York Times and gets it in, on the evening television is yeah. that this is now a um, not just highly specific, but extremely easy to modify system that you can, you know, it used to be that that knocking out a gene in a strain of mice, that was a doctoral thesis. In fact, in the lab that I was in, in graduate school, there was somebody working directly across from me who spent four years of his life knocking out a gene in mice. Um, you know, and, and he did it, and that was a big part of his PhD thesis. Now that's a project that you give to a rotating undergraduate to do in a couple of weeks because you can, you can take the modified versions of these and um, uh, there are now a few different systems, but uh, uh, they've been simplified in such a way that you can just buy a kit. Just, just like CRISPR say, it. Okay, yeah, just CRISPR it and you, and you, you say, okay, well, uh, where do we want to cut this gene? Well, we'd like to cut it exactly here and exactly here. Okay. So you design those primers and you put them into your system and then you, transfect your cells and wham, bam, the gene's gone. Um, or, or you can use it to insert a new gene or you can, you can just really, the power of this thing is, is consistently jaw dropping. Uh, I, I went to a meeting, um, a couple of years ago about it and it was just one talk after another. And, and I've kind of kept up with this, but I, I just kept saying, Man, there's <laughs> nothing you can't do with this thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's amazing. There are some yeah. limits, but they're they're far enough out there that it really has opened up a huge and and possibly kind of scary new territory. Jeez, oh, all of this from yogurt. All from yogurt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeez, it's it's, yeah. it's crazy. So how did they figure out that they could use the cast proteins to do this or, or how did they, how they discover them? That right. So the cas enzymes are actually encoded right next to the CRISPR locus. And they, um, in, in figuring out what happens to the CRISPR RNAs, they isolated, started isolating the cas enzymes, then cloned out those, um, pieces and started reconstructing the system. And once they'd done that, they said, oh, okay, Cas enzyme one does this, Cas enzyme two does this step of the process and so forth. Um, and um, I, I think it was Doudna's lab that found the Cas9 complex was particularly good 
um, in being a kind of a minimal version of this system that was easy to manipulate. And so she and um, uh, Charpentier, Emmanuel Charpentier, put together, I think they've now got a system where they fused the components of the Cas9 enzyme together. So it's now just a single piece that you can work with, which makes it even easier. Um, and uh, and then that is the enzyme that carries out, that, that identifies the target sequence and cuts it. So that's that's kind of where this whole thing came from. And the power of it, I mean, this concept of gene therapy in humans is now back on the table, um, you know, and and there's a whole ball of ethical issues around that. Uh, if you if you are going to artificially change a genome, this is something that could have multi-generational content, uh, you know, consequences and um and how do you consent for that? How can you give informed consent for something that might affect your great-grandchildren in some unpredictable way? The, the science caught up to and then passed the ethics, and now there are a lot of discussions ongoing. And the researchers involved in this have been very upfront about it and, and I think very transparent in saying, hey, everybody, you know, general public, everybody needs to pay attention to this and think about where we want to go from here. Um, there's a related technology that uh, you may talk about in a, another episode called a gene drive, um, which this this enables, and you could use that to do um, do some major ecosystem engineering that may or may not be a good thing. Um, you know, hu humanity's history of ecosystem engineering has not exactly been encouraging. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I'm going to yeah. save that for like season two or three. Yes, yeah. I think that's going to be a longer discussion. <laughs> Man, you know, I think I'm going to have to have you on the show again. You mentioned just in this conversation the history <laughs> of how we figured out that the genome was the genetic material, basically. And uh, I plan an episode that's going to discuss the Hershey Chase experiment. And, and I, yeah, I think it would be cool to have you back. You know, Rich would actually be really good yeah. for that. He's really into the history. And um, I, I don't want to say he's an old, old guy, but he's old enough. <laughs> he did live He did live and work through sort of the tail end of that. He was yeah. getting into molecular biology right at the, yeah. at the point when it had just become really, really hot. So you might want to hit him up for that. Yeah, I, I, I think I totally heard Dixon talking about one like one the history of blenders and, and microbiome. Oh, the wearing blender, yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yes. Dixon is another, another good one to get on, but I don't know about keeping him to 20 minutes. <laughs> Poor Dixon. Oh, I'll let him go as long as he wants. Yeah, we're coming to 30 now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Alan. I really appreciate it. I'll put a link in our show notes to your website and to Twitter. All right. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again, Alan. Take you care. Take care. Thanks again to the band Night Moves for letting us use their song Carl Sagan as their intro and outro music. Their new Carl Sagan EP is available on iTunes right now. I recommend you go buy it, like, I don't know, like right now. Thanks for listening. Stop.